seated. Well, if you have a Bible, I'd like to invite you to turn with me today to Isaiah chapter 42 as I begin a new sermon series with you. Uh, take a couple more weeks out of this summer as I have done in the past to study a, a book from uh, among the classics of the Christian faith. I've done this for many years when so many of us, even today, obviously, are in and out, on vacation, gone for two weeks here and there. Um, I've taken books in the past, typically Puritan books, but also some other classics from various time periods, and tried to present to you at least some of the main ideas from those books. And then if you're gone for a couple weeks, just buy the book and read it on vacation, and you'll get much more than you would have gotten from me. You won't miss a thing, and uh, I hope by this also to put a little steel in your spine as we, we turn again and again to some of the great teachers of the Christian faith from of old and remember the great things that they still have to teach us today. So from Isaiah chapter 42, we're going to be reading, and yet the title of this study is going to be The Bruised Reed, as I'll be explaining briefly. It's a book you could find free online. You could buy a copy from Christian book distributors, or I noticed that Heritage book is, Books is out. I would usually tell you to get it from them, but for some reason they're out. Uh, or free on Kindle, I believe, from Richard Sibbs. Anyway, let's begin by reading the passage before us, Isaiah 42, starting in verse 1. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail, nor be discouraged, till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands shall wait for his law. Thus says the Lord, who, God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness, and I will hold your hand, and I will, give, I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison. Those who sit in darkness from the prison house, I am the Lord. That is my name and my glory. I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Amen. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that we might find ourselves uh, in these very verses as those weak and bruised reeds, the very ones for whom our Lord has come to cherish, to raise up, and to deliver to your heavenly courts. We pray, our Father, that this prophecy from Isaiah would speak to us today in a new way, and we pray that everyone here would leave this place beholding your servant, in whom your soul delights, in whose name we pray. Amen. In the days of King James I of England, there was in England a university professor at Cambridge and a Puritan preacher named Richard Sibbs. He worked for the further reformation of the church, and for his troubles, he was greatly persecuted by the king and his bishops. 
But, Sib said, a curse lies on those who, when truth suffers, have not a word to defend it. Well, he was uh, once banished, that is, exiled, thrown out of his country by the government, along with 11 other Puritan ministers. But unlike them, he managed to stay in England until his death in 1835. He had the habit of writing out his sermons, which were not published until after his death, but are still in print. Sibbs himself, though, only published or prepared one small book, which we have today as The Bruised Reed. A few sermons that he preached back in his home congregation, which he had put into print, he wrote on the title page, at the desire and for the good of weaker Christians. He wrote this book to help them. And it's been helping weaker Christians ever since. Why it's been helping all Christians ever since. One of the finest preachers of the 20th century was a man named Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And this is what he said about him. He said, I shall never cease to be grateful to Richard Sibbs, who was balm to my soul at a period in my life when I was overworked and badly overtired, and therefore subject in an unusual manner to the onslaughts of the devil. The heavenly Dr. Sibbs was an unfailing remedy. The bruised reed quieted, soothed, comforted, encouraged, and healed me. Sibbs wrote this book for the healing of bruised reeds, for discouraged, distressed, heartbroken Christians. And he was particularly concerned in that day of preparationism, as it was called, that So many of the preachers of his day were only preaching duty and no delight. Law without love, beating down some of the weaker Christians, but never raising them up. They were telling people what to do, but they weren't teaching them why to do it or why they'd even want to do it. To put it simply, they they just weren't warming the heart. For example, there was a man named Humphrey Mills who was in his congregation and heard Sibs preached this series of sermons, and he tells what it was like for him. He said, I had been for three years wounded for sins, and under a sense of my corruptions, which are many, and I followed sermons pursuing the means of grace and was constant in duties and doing, looking for heaven that way, and then I was so precise for outward formalities that I censured all to be reprobates. In other words, he, he, is, he was for years under conviction of sin, and he was doing what the preachers told him to do. He was listening dis- diligently to sermons and reading the Bible and praying and doing what Christians are supposed to do. And he got so good at doing those things that he began to look upon others as unbelievers because they weren't doing them. But then he realized at the end of all that that he wasn't actually any better for all of this activity. He writes, But still I was distracted in my mind, wounded in conscience, and wept often and bitterly, and prayed earnestly, and yet had no comfort. Till I heard that sweet saint, Dr. Sibbs, by whose means and ministry I was brought to peace and joy in my spirit. His sweet, soul-melting gospel sermons won my heart and refreshed me much. For by him I saw and had much of God, and was confident in Christ, and could overcome the world. My heart held firm, and resolved, 
and my desires went heavenward. What a difference it made, in other words, when he finally found some delight and confidence in the Lord Jesus, who won his heart and refreshed him. I, I, I say this by way of an extended introduction today to the series and to this book, because, you know, this is a struggle in every age of the church. A, a legal spirit can creep in, not only to preaching, but into hearts. People just give you the rules and the penalty for breaking them, or you just seek to follow the rules. The result is that weaker ones begin to struggle, and the more diligent ones become more proud. But everyone suffers with that approach. It's not good for anyone. That wasn't the Lord's way. And Sibs, for his part, he had to teach teenage boys at Cambridge University. Parents take note. He understood that duty can only be sustained when it is supported by desire, by motivation. He understood. And so this book sets out to correct that error in a very positive way. He's very rarely negative, but at one point he does criticize, quote, those fiery, tempestuous, and destructive spirits in popery that seek to promote their religion by cruelty and show that they are strangers to that wisdom which is from above, which makes men gentle, peaceable, and ready to show that mercy with which they have felt before themselves. He writes, because the head and the heart must help one another. It is good for us to keep our affections of love and delight by all the sweet inducements and divine encouragements. For what the heart likes best, the mind studies most. Brothers and sisters, while, while I admit he's not the easiest Puritan to read, he is one of the most tweetable. <laughs> what the heart likes best the mind studies most. And we've got to address ourselves to that, he says. That's, that's profound. So he sets before the discouraged Christian Christ to study Christ and to warm his heart toward Christ. For he says, there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. I'll wait if you want to tweet that one too. There is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. And so Sib says, look, you don't need more willpower. Like we often think, I just, I just need more willpower. No. In the fall, he says, the human will did not become disabled and in need of power. No, no, no. It became disaffected and in need of God's love. Disaffected, he says, meaning that we started loving the wrong things. We started to desire what was wrong and evil and what was going to kill us? Such sin drew us away from God, made us bitter and rebellious toward him. And because of these disordered and distorted passions, we became miserable. The will is doing what the will always does. It just chooses the most desirable thing. The heart that is what has truly gone astray. But this is also, he says, the ultimate cure. For when our affections and duty are declining, the solution is to warm ourselves at the fire of God's love and mercy. 
So this is all theoretical. Let me try to give you a practical example from the book, one that you can all relate to. You, you get to the point in which you are discouraged about praying, right? A very common experience, as he says, a decline of affections and duty. Maybe, our, maybe we're just weak. Maybe we feel we just don't know what to pray for anymore. Maybe our prayers are confused. Maybe our prayers are just pitiful. Maybe we keep on having sinful thoughts creeping in while we're praying. We think we might as well just stop. No, 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 he says. You need to recognize that God is the God of the weak. Weakness is creeping in. Okay, but he writes, God will hear the desires of his own spirit in you. God can pick sense out of a confused prayer. Those desires cry louder in his ears than your sins. These stirrings of heart touch the heart of God and melt him into compassion toward us when they come through the spirit of adoption and from a striving to be better. Look to the promises. And I won't read all the details, but he says, God accepts our prayers, though weak, because we are his own children. There is never a holy sigh, never a tear we shed, which is lost. And by prayer, we learn to pray. God in Christ will cast a gracious eye upon that which is his own. So you see how he approaches the problem, the problem of weakness, and how he refuses to separate head and heart. He doesn't just say, now, Christians ought to pray. You pray without ceasing. You don't pray without ceasing. You're bad Christians. That's true. (laughs) He tells us why. We want to keep praying when the weakness is creeping in, when we don't feel like it, when we are discouraged, when we realize our wretchedness. He says, God casts a gracious eye upon his own, and by prayer you will learn to pray, and he will hear. And that's what we need to keep going. You see, or let me give you just a totally unrelated illustration Uh, A couple weeks ago, we were on vacation. My wife was talking to a man who was raised as a foster child and experienced some of the usual difficulties, I'm sad to say, going from house to house. My My wife asked him what one piece of advice he might give to foster parents. He said that one of the families he was with, in that family, their love was very evident, and the parents said he could call them mom and dad. He says, you know, there are plenty of people who will tell you to do your homework. There aren't many who will love you. But it's that love that makes all the difference. So I say by way of extended introduction today, this is going to be Sib's approach. A father's love, a son's grace, a very present spirit's help. And this is why Sib's book is particularly good for bruised reeds. He wants to put them on a solid foundation for the Christian life. With that long but I hope helpful introduction, I'd like to now look at the passage before us today. And as usual, I'm not going to be preaching the book. I'm going to be preaching from the passages, but uh, using his ideas. So let's take it under two headings today. First, the bruising that must come. Second, the servant we must behold. The bruising that must come, come to you. And the servant we must behold. 
whom you have to look to even today. First, the bruising that must come. The bruising that must come. We have before us one of the four, the first of the four great poems or servant songs, as they are called, about the servant of the Lord in Isaiah, who's identified everywhere in the New Testament as Jesus, including the passage we started with in our call to worship today. And by the way, many people have noticed how these four servant songs, they they really lay out the life of Jesus so beautifully that here in the first one, we read how Jesus uh, ministered to the needs of hurting people and preached the good news of the kingdom of God and healed them, chapter 42. Turning the tribes of Jacob to the Lord, he became a light to the nations, chapter 49. But then so shamefully and spitefully treated, yet he did not turn back from his work, chapter 50. And at last he was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed, Isaiah 53. So there's the four songs which lay out the Lord's ministry so nicely. But here in the first song, here in chapter 42, we are introduced to the servant, one in whom the Lord delights, on whom he has put his spirit as the anointed Messiah. Well, everybody knew what the Messiah was supposed to do when he came. Everyone at least thought he knew. The Messiah was going to crush the enemies of God and establish the Lord's righteous kingdom by force throughout the earth. And in the Lord's own day, people couldn't wait for Rome to be conquered and for Jerusalem at last to rule the world. But as you know, Jesus didn't act in the way that they expected Messiah to act. I mean, Jesus clearly had all the power of God at his disposal, but again and again, he was just using it to heal people, to heal the sick rather than conquer the world. In fact, when Matthew writes that this very passage was fulfilled in Jesus, the context was this. Jesus had withdrawn himself from the Pharisees who were seeking to destroy him, running away. And then he warned the people not to make known his miracles, keeping a low profile. Such gentle behavior seems strange to those who are expecting the Messiah to conquer the nations. But no, no, no. Matthew points out that this is just what Isaiah had prophesied so many years before. Oh, yes, the Messiah will bring justice to the nations of the earth. He will establish righteousness. He will rule the world and the very coastlands will wait upon his law. But what the people didn't understand was how that great victory was coming. The Messiah was not going to come with a sword and a a white charger. He was going to come humble, riding on a donkey. And a little child was going to lead them, as Isaiah wrote earlier. He was going to come through, not with a sword and spear, but the kingdom would come through word and spirit to the nations. And he would surely have his victory over the nations, but only as the prince of peace. He was not going to even raise his voice. Sorry, raise his voice. Or cause his voice to be heard in the street. And the poor and needy would find in him a helper and a healer. One who was so gentle that he wouldn't break a bruised reed or quench smoking flax, a smoking wick. 
Now, a reed is already something that's pretty weak, right? And a bruised reed is both weak and wounded. But these are the ones, the tender ones, to whom the Messiah was sent. That disfigured man we read about at the beginning, that Jesus healed on the Sabbath, he was a bruised reed. And the Lord had mercy on him and restored him. Those tax collectors and sinners we read about in the chapter before, they were bruised reeds, and Jesus was a friend and ate and drank with them, and so on. This prophecy is fulfilled in Christ's tender, compassionate care for the poor and needy, weak and sinful, while the proud he knew from afar. The self-righteous had nothing but scorn. For Jesus. But those bruised reeds, they found in Jesus their help, their salvation, and their strength. And Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs are the kingdom of heaven. This is where the study must begin. It's addressed to bruised reeds. Are you, are you a bruised reed? If you're going to look to Jesus, as you must, behold my servant, verse 1, you have to first recognize the great need that you have and the real standing you have before God. Or as Sibs puts it in his book, you need to be reduced from the mighty oaks of our pride's imagination to the frailty of bruised reeds, which is our true standing before our Creator. Humanity, he says, is laboring under a double curse. I mean, not only, he says, do we rebelliously and thoughtlessly break God's commandments, we also deceive ourselves, then, of the true extent of our crime and guilt. We're condemned by sin and lost in delusion. And he says, can we think that the God who threw angels out of heaven would allow worm meat and dust to rise up against him? <laughs> I really like that. Worm meat and dust. Okay? You need to recognize who you are before God. The ugly truth and it is Christ's way that he will first wound before he heals. It's a very hard thing, Sib says, to, to bring a dull and evasive heart, to cry with feeling for mercy. Our hearts are like criminals until they have their guilt exposed. And like criminals, they will never cry for mercy before the judge until then. So, brothers and sisters, if the Lord loves us, he's going to begin by humbling your heart, by bruising that hard heart of yours until you recognize there is no hope for you in your self-righteousness, which you don't have. There is a proper discouragement that we must have in the Christian life. When we are discouraged about ourselves, when we know the truth about ourselves and our own self-righteousness, which is a myth, this bruising well, then, he says, make, a, make us set a high price on Christ, and the gospel will become the gospel indeed when we get rid of these fig leaves of morality. 
which will do us no good, trying to cover up our nakedness by our own morality. Well, it's just the beginning, he says. That's just the beginning of the Christian life. But then having come to Christ, so many of you here, brothers and sisters, he says you still need bruising. <laughs> to remember that you are reeds and not oaks. The Lord must continually subdue your pride to remind you, to let you see that you live by his mercy. Well, for example, think about Peter. Think about Peter on the night in which the Lord was betrayed. Remember the, the time early in the evening when he was so strong and confident? You're like, yeah, that's what I need. I need, to, I need to be more strong and confident and bold. Yeah, like Peter, who said, even if all are made to stumble because of you, Lord, I will never be made to stumble. All these people may stumble. I'll never stumble. At the end of the evening, Peter is weak, humiliated, guilty, broken. And we read Peter went out and wept bitterly. So I ask you, when was Peter in a better spiritual state? Hmm? He was in a healthier spiritual condition when he was weeping bitterly at the end of the night in the upper, than in, in the upper room when he was confidently promising the Lord his undying and unshakable loyalty. Because Peter didn't know what was in his heart. Peter was relying upon himself. He was proud and looking down on others. He was trusting in himself. He wouldn't even watch and pray when the Lord was repeatedly exhorting him to do so. And he was a much more honest, realistic, useful servant when he remembered that he was, in fact, a bruised reed. And when he saw who he was. I say this because you and I, we, we often, uh, as Christians, and I don't think we mean to, but we often exude a certain pride, self-righteousness, self-reliance. We can do it. And that's not only bad for us. It destroys our witness to others and our usefulness in so many ways. And... We need that humility that Paul, read, that Paul read to us about his own life. We need to be reminded from time to time that we are standing by grace and not by our own goodness. So that even Paul, after all that he did, could say, I worked harder than them all, yet not I. It was the grace of God in me. But, but the point is, bruised reeds. It's so important for us to have these biblical examples like Peter, who remind us that, that we're the same. When, when, when we stumble, there's not something strange or wrong with us. Sib says, the mighty deeds of the great Bible heroes don't comfort the church as much as their falls and bruises do. Thus, David was bruised until he came to a free confession. Thus, Hezekiah complains that God had broken his bones. Thus, the chosen vessel, Paul, needed the messenger of Satan to buffet him, lest he should be lifted up above measure. It's not safe. We need to remember who we are. That we are, that they were weak people just like us. This will keep us from passing too harsh a judgment on others or even ourselves when we've fallen and been humbled by God. And if Christ is so merciful at that point even not to break us, we must not break ourselves in despair. Indeed, this reminds us where our only hope and strength really does lie. 
Without him, you can do nothing. And when we are humbled like that, then we find, as he says, there's more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. And so he says, let's support ourselves when we feel ourselves bruised. Christ's way is first to wound and then to heal. And no healthy soul shall ever enter into heaven. My first point, the bruising that must come and come and come again. And when we've been bruised and we've gained this proper perspective and humility about ourselves and who we truly are before God, it's then, he says, that we'll begin to look at Christ in a whole different way. And we realize this is a great Savior. Where we come to our second and final point today, the servant whom we must behold. The servant whom we must behold. Verse 1 again. Behold my servant. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. A messianic promise. Here's where we need to look. To Christ, as Sibs puts it, where we see salvation not only strongly wrought, but also sweetly dispensed by him. You get it? First, first strongly in the passage, he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. And yet also sweetly, he won't cry out or raise his voice or cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he won't break and a smoking flax he won't quench until he brings forth justice for truth. Victory, but strong and sweet victory. A victory that lies not with you and me ultimately, but with Christ. Teaching us that we must be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. We have weak faith, yes. But it's not the strength of your faith that saves you, but the strength of your Christ A little thing, he writes, in the hand of a giant can do great things. And a little faith, strengthened by Christ, will work wonders. You look to him. You put more faith in him. You look out of your weak self to behold God's servant. And I want you to see something very wonderful here. If I can take you into the weeds for a few minutes in this passage of Isaiah that unfortunately you can't translate well in English, although I wish they explained it in a footnote. Um, Christ has what we need, and he is what we are not. And so, if I can have you follow with me for a second, this is brought together in the sweet bit of poetry in verses 3 and 4. First, we've been talking about a bruised reed, a bruised reed. Well, the word bruised here in verse 3 is the same word as discouraged in my translation In verse 4, we are discouraged, but the Lord's servant is not discouraged. Or you could use the word crushed in English. That actually works pretty well. Um, Crushed, like you can crush a can, or or you can be crushed, which means uh, overwhelmingly disappointed or defeated. The team was crushed at the tournament. Well, this Hebrew word is sometimes translated crushed. But here's the point I'm trying to get you to see. In the passage, the same word is being used to show the contrast. You, you are a bruised reed, crushed, weak, wounded. 
liable to disappointment and defeat, but not the Lord's servant. He won't be discouraged or defeated. We are weak. He is strong. And the other word in the passage is also used in verse 3 and verse 4. This smoking flax, verse 3, is the same word as fail in verse 4. So if you see a candle that's flickering at the end, maybe ready to go out, you might say that the wick's smoking. They would say the wick is failing. A failing wick, a failing flax he will not quench. This is the brilliance of the poetry that I wish I could explain to you better. We are like that flickering, faltering light of a candle. God's servant will not fail or falter. We fail. Jesus never fails. We are bruised, crushed reed, prone to discouragement. He will not fail or be discouraged. Can you see the parallel? We are weak. He is not weak. We are discouraged. He is not discouraged. We may fail in flickering. He will not fail or flicker. What we cannot do, this passage assures us, the servant of the Lord will assuredly do. So Sibs says, shall our sins discourage us when he appears there only for sinners? Okay, sinful, weak, humble person, you need to recognize God has appointed someone especially for you who does not have those sins and failings and weaknesses that you do. That you should not look to yourself, but look to him. Bruise, reed, smoking flax, look to the one who is strong. Conceal not your wounds. Be of good comfort, he calls you. Open all before him and take not Satan's counsel, he writes. Go to Christ, although trembling as the poor woman who said, if I could just touch his garment, I should be healed and you will be healed and have a gracious answer. Our sins are the sins of men, he writes, but Christ's mercy is the mercy of an infinite God. And the blood of Christ is crying louder than the guilt of your sin. There is nothing to prevent you from going to him from finding in him what you need. He has navigated all the, the, the sins and the difficulties that are of this world without sin. Sorry, uh, the, the, the trials and difficulties of this world without sin. And you say, okay, I, I get it. I, I, but I need not just forgiveness. I need help. I need growth. Well, he will be victorious. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not fail. He will not be discouraged till he's established justice in the earth. And you have to realize that Christ is not just a savior. He is a savior and a mighty savior. But beholding Christ, he writes, is a transforming sight. That as you turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face, you'll find the things of earth strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Second, he says, you know, other princes can make good laws, but they can't write them in people's hearts. But this is Christ's prerogative, that he infuses into his subjects his own spirit. So that where Christ, by his spirit, as a prophet, teaches, he likewise, as a king, by his spirit, subdues the heart. That's the teaching which is promised of God. When not only the brain, but the heart itself is taught. When men do not only know what they should do, 
but are taught the very doing of it. That they are not only taught that they should love, fear, and obey, but they are taught love itself, fear and obedience itself, end quote. In other words, you need to recognize looking to Christ is not just to say, oh, Jesus, I failed again. Oh, Lord, forgive me in Jesus' name. No, that this, this one is appointed not just to be your prophet, but as the king to command your heart, to teach you love and fear and obedience itself to change your very desires. He's not just the motivation, but the means of change. He doesn't just give us reasons, he gives us his own power. Sib says he draws us strongly to subdue our hearts and sanctify them to love him, without which all the motives in the world would be ineffective. I could give you all the best reasons in the world, he says, unless Christ gave you his new strength, his power. All the motives in the world would be ineffective. And, you know, third, he's, he's made us weak in order to lean on him. I have in, a, in, the back, in the backyard an abundance of Virginia creeper. Some of that Virginia creeper in my yard is higher than my house. And you say, how does a weak vine make it up so very high? Answer, it clings to the mighty oak trees. And have you ever noticed that the weakest creatures often have the strongest shelters? You need to cling to Christ. You need to flee to Jesus, people. You need to recognize your bankruptcy and his riches. Not just to train the mind, but to change the heart. The consciousness of the church's weakness, he writes, makes her willing to lean on her beloved and to hide herself under his wing. And, of course, he goes on and on. <laughs> and you can turn to Sibs and find someone who's making the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ both beautiful and practical at the same time. And, as I said at the beginning, it's not enough for a preacher to preach against sin. He's got to hold forth the grace and glory of the Savior. So point two, this is the Savior to whom you must look and look and look again for strength and support and victory. Every time you are bruised again, you remember this day when I said that you need to look, bruised reed. Look, behold the Lord's servant in whom he delights. And I'd like to conclude today with a few other tweetable thoughts. Sib says, Christ was broken that we should not be broken. He was troubled that we should not be desperately troubled. He became a curse that we should not be accursed. And even more wondrous, if possible, he came to die as a priest for his enemies, standing between God's anger in them and shedding tears for those that shed his blood. What a Savior. And do you see how delighted the Father is in such a servant? Verse 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. The Father says, calling us in this passage to the highest pitch of attention and admiration. What support this is to our faith that God the Father, he writes, the party offended by our sins, is so well pleased with the work of redemption. Therefore, let us embrace Christ and in him God's love and build our faith safely on such a Savior that is furnished with so high a commission.
well, high rhetoric for the 17th century. But brothers and sisters, I hope you understand there is no hope in a bruised reed, but there is hope for a bruised reed in Jesus. It's the very work he has come to do, a gentle savior for you, tender believer. And the triumphantly glorious truth announced in this passage is that looking to him, we will find that he will not fail in his work. We'll fail in our work, but he will never fail in his. Look, look unto Jesus. Let us pray. Oh Lord, what a heart we have that needs all of this, that not a word of it could be spared. Indeed, we've just begun to consider such things, but we do readily and truthfully confess that bruised reeds we are, weak and wounded, sick and sore. And we are so thankful that Jesus has stand, stands ready to save us. We pray that there might be some soul here who has understood for the first time, perhaps, these true words, the real needs, the only hope. I pray that you would bring that soul to a joyful sight of Jesus today. May he be the help and the hope of every last one here. We would rise in him. We would be lifted up in him. We are thankful for appointing just such a one as we need. And we pray, our Father, that you would forgive us for all those many times that we still, after so many years of progress, have trusted in ourselves, have been proud and arrogant and thoughtless and prayerless and foolish, wickedly foolish. Forgive us, O Lord. He is our righteousness. He is our all in all. You have done all things well in him. May our souls likewise more and more delight.